welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now on to today's episode. What did it feel like to be a Christian in the earliest churches? How does telling stories help us rediscover the role of women in Paul's ministry? How does imagination help us see Paul and his good news in a different light? And how might close attention to people's backstories enable us to forgive them and indeed ourselves? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Canon Dr. Paula Gooder. Paula is a New Testament scholar and Canon Chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Among her many published works are two books based on New Testament characters, Phoebe and Lydia. And our title today is, How Does Imagination Help Us Encounter the Teaching of Paul Today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Paula Gooder, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you for having me. And Paula, it's a second visit to Talking Theology, and we're really glad to have you back. Paula, let's go back to the New Testament as your main area of study. What what was it, first of all, that made you want to study the New Testament in greater depth? And then tell us about where that interest has taken you over the years. Well, when I was doing my theology degree, the thing that I just loved over and over again was studying the New Testament. And I ended up, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, just choosing as many possible modules as I could doing New Testament. People who know the writings of Tom Wright might understand that one of the reasons I was really attracted to studying the New Testament is that he was my tutor. So uh, there was something about sitting at his feet and learning how you understand the New Testament. In a way, I could probably just have said to you, Tom Wright, and then you would have understood. But it's impossible not to be infected by his enthusiasm for the New Testament. And basically, that's how it began to unfold for me. You've written a number of books on the New Testament and the faith that's disclosed there, really. Give us a sense about the different jobs you've had and the different books you've written over the years. I've wandered around all over the place in my job. So I started in theological education. I taught first at Ripon College, Cudston, then at the Queen's Foundation for Ecumenical Theological Education. And then when my children were little, I thought I would take a bit of time out and look after the children um, and not do very much. And that was not a plan that worked out because instead I became a freelance writer and lecturer and ended up traveling even more than I had been before writing and lecturing and doing those kind of things. And that's where I started doing big writing because that was when I had a bit more space for it. And then following that, I became the theologian in residence for the Bible Society. Then I was director of mission learning and development for the Birmingham Diocese. And now my current job, which is Canon Chancellor of St Paul's. We're here to talk today about the role of imagination in reading and interpreting the New Testament on the back of two books you've published, one called Phoebe and the second called Lydia. Now, I know a lot of our listeners will have read them, but just introduce the books and just outline the approach that you take in these two books. So what I'm trying to do in both of the books is to introduce Pauline theology to people who would never in a 100 years pick up a big, chunky Pauline theology book. 
But what I began by doing was trying to get into what it actually might have felt like to be a Christian in the early churches. So what it might have been like to be one of those earliest people who listened to Paul, who heard him unfolding the gospel for the very first time. And what might that have felt like? And from that, I thought that actually, do you know, the only way that you can really do that effectively is by telling a story. Because when we do Pauline theology, normally we just kind of use our brains and our intellect and our rational faculties, and that's how we engage. But one of the things I've noticed in myself while I read Paul, and I've certainly noticed it in other people, is that people react emotionally to Paul. And one of the things that I was trying to do was to get into why people react emotionally to Paul and what happens when you react emotionally to Paul. So in a way, it's a story. So two thirds of both of the books are a story, an act of imagination that's based in history. So I use the scholarship in order to be able to imagine how people might have lived in the first century. And then the last third of each book is notes so that people who are interested in what we know and where we get it from um, can do a little bit more rootling around and understand it. So it's a kind of a, it's an attempt to understand things emotionally, to bring things to life and to, to see what it might have felt like to be there. Phoebe is particularly concerned with the letter to the Romans and how the letter to the Romans would have been received by the early church in Rome. And Lydia looks at the letter to the Philippians and in particular takes that on about what did it look like after Paul had been to Philippi and then to write to them later on. Why did you choose those two characters, Phoebe and Lydia, and why those two letters? Which came first, the, the letters or the characters? Definitely the characters, because the other thing that you're kind of pressing me to say, and you're absolutely right to press, um, is that one of my great passions is to reimagine women back into our stories. I realised a few years ago, probably six or seven years ago, that I was doing a piece of Ignatian spirituality, which many people will have done, where you imagine a biblical story and you imagine your reactions to it. And I stopped short halfway through it because I suddenly realised that every single person in, in my imaginary world was a man. And it was a story in which it wasn't necessary at all for all of the characters to be men. And then having recognised that, I then kind of realised my inner imaginary world when I'm thinking about Paul. Whenever I thought about Paul and the Pauline communities, there were only men in it. And so one of the things I'm trying to do in writing Phoebe and Lydia... And I should probably also add that I've done another thing on the Gospels called the Women of Holy Week, in which I imagined um, the last week of Jesus's life through the eyes of nine different women involved in that story, um, is actually to repopulate our imaginations with women, but not to insert them where they weren't already, but to remind us that they were already there. But somehow our imaginations get caught up and kind of throw them out of the picture. So why Phoebe and Lydia? Because actually, Phoebe and Lydia are two most remarkable women from the first century and are worth um, having a really good think about. So Phoebe tells us the story of, of somebody who was taking the letter of Paul to the Romans and she encounters this Roman church and the different characters in it. Lydia is about the person who became a Christian. And then you imagine that she went away and then comes back to Philippi and encounters the church there. And they're both incredible sort of narratives of, of, of taking us into these, these stories and into these worlds. I'm interested, how do you find writing these stories? A, really, really hard. B, I absolutely loved it. Both of those need to be held together. 
Um, The reason why it's really hard is that in biblical studies, the answer to nearly every single question you might ask is a multiple answer. You know, you can say, well, it could be this, or it could be that, or it could be the other. It's the way New Testament studies functions. And I am kind of the ultimate New Testament theologian in that I kind of like to hold all possible answers on the table until I absolutely can't do it anymore. So the thing, the reason why it's hard for me to write a story is you can't have three answers to your questions in a story. You can only have one answer. So um, I was really forced to do the opposite of what I normally like to do. And I had to choose. I had to decide what I thought about various things, which was pretty tricky, but very, very interesting. So it was hard because it required me to come down and make exegetical decisions. So that's the hard bit. The I loved it bit. And that's the thing I discovered when I was writing that I hadn't expected. So I was expecting to try and help people into Pauline theology and to give them kind of an insight into what was going on. What I hadn't expected was the recognition that actually, if we don't imagine our biblical narratives, we miss out a whole realm of interpretation, which we never talk about as New Testament scholars. You know, in the scholarly world, we never actually engage with that whole question of emotion. You think about, well, any of Paul's letters, and one of the really key things that happens in all of Paul's letters is Paul will say something and his hearers will react emotionally. They will respond in some way or another. But because we only ever engage with Paul intellectually, you kind of cut out that entire understanding of what's going on. It's very true in Romans, but I think it's possibly even more true in Philippians. And when I started reading Philippians emotionally, I discovered a whole load of things about Philippians theology that I didn't know, I hadn't noticed, and I don't think most other commentators had noticed. So if I give you a for example, one of the interesting things about Philippians is what Paul is doing is talking to the Philippians about how you rejoice in the Lord when life is really difficult, when you're facing really hard situations. And suddenly realizing as you're writing a story that actually what Paul is doing is not just imagining an intellectual exercise in which, you know, let's imagine life is really hard and now let's imagine what it might be like to rejoice in that. Actually, Paul's writing from prison. So he's saying, here are my hard won emotional learnings that I have learned the, the worst way possible by being in prison. Now let me help you learn from what I've learned. And it sounds really obvious when I say it out loud, but actually it was one of those moments where I went, oh, yes, actually, there's something really significant going on about how Paul's doing his teaching here, which is really important, I think. You talked about how it was quite hard for you as a New Testament scholar to kind of pin your colours to a particular exegetical mast. Were there any risks or obstacles that you were also aware of that you had to navigate in writing the books in the way that you did? It's the same risk as for all exegesis, but it increases because you're doing an imaginative exercise. But the risk is, of course, that kind of eternal horror of a New Testament scholar that you end up doing eisegesis rather than exegesis, that you're reading into the text something that isn't there rather than reading out of the text something that genuinely is there. I think one of the real challenges, so, and again, it's the thing that people often want to say to me when they've read my books, you know, how do you defend yourself against the charge that you're just making it up? The answer is by doing really careful reading. 
I cannot tell you for certain that certain things may or may not happen. But actually, if you are very, very faithful to what's actually there in the text and understand what's going on in the text, then in a sense, you give yourself a boundary or a parameter beyond which you won't stray. So I think possibly one of the greatest risks or dangers is eisegesis when you're doing this. But I think I would also want to respond to that by saying it's the same danger as is there in all interpreting the New Testament. Whenever we get going on the New Testament, it's inevitable that we ask the New Testament our questions. And as soon as we ask the New Testament our questions, then we are stepping on the boundaries of Jesus. We can't help it. You've given us a bit of a sneak preview into what you saw in the letter to the Philippians that you hadn't seen already. But can I take you back to Phoebe, first of all, and uh, Paul's letter to the Romans? When you wrote Phoebe, what in that approach that you've taken, how does it help us see new aspects to the letter to the Romans that perhaps have been overlooked, underestimated or just plain ignored? I think the key thing is that you realise when you are writing characters around the reception of Paul's letters, that actually, just as today, then, they will have heard what Paul was saying through the lens of their own experience. So... I think one of the things that really fascinates me is that when we have conversations about how we read Romans, we assume these days that, of course, my experience will be different than your experience and we will hear it slightly differently. But of course, the first century people were all the same. It's one of those kind of really fascinating things about kind of people's assumptions because they haven't thought about it, which is that Paul wrote a letter. The early communities went, yes, of course, we absolutely accept everything you've said. And on they go. At which point you do want to pause and go, you have read 1 and 2 Corinthians, haven't you? Because 1 and 2 Corinthians is the surefire argument against that. Because let's say that Paul has written to the Corinthians, they've written back. We then get 1 Corinthians. And clearly they are in this massive disagreement about what's going on. So yeah, a real tussle is going on between Paul and the Corinthians. And then you read 2 Corinthians and it's moved on again. And clearly there's a big argument going on between them. But again, what we kind of assume is that we call them the Corinthians. And so therefore, we assume that every single Corinthian responded to Paul in exactly the same way. Corinthian A responded as B and C and D did. But of course, we know from modern experience that, of course, that's not the case. And the thing that really struck me when I was writing Phoebe is that Paul's language about, for example, slavery sounds completely different if you're a slave than if you are a free person. Um, Paul's language about adoption sounds completely different if you're somebody who has been adopted or somebody who hasn't been adopted. And you can pretty much pick a piece of Pauline theology and it sounds and feels different depending on the experience that you've come from. And that, I think, is the biggest thing I learned and the biggest thing I would kind of want other people to get is to pay really close attention to how theology plays off people's experience, how it lands in it and plays off it. And therefore, you will respond differently, you will engage with it differently, simply because your experience changes things. And one of the themes that goes across both of your books, Paul, and both Romans and Philippians, and indeed much of the Pauline corpus, is this tension between the Gentile background believers and the Jewish background believers. That's obviously something that we can sort of know about the New Testament, that there were these different background believers, but they seems to come to the foreground in your books in a way that I hadn't really experienced before. Was that very intentional? Oh, absolutely. 
I think one of the things that we do is we admit that not all readers read the same. We go, well, either you're Jewish or you're Gentile, and then you will read it exactly in the same kind of way. What I was trying to pull out was that your lived experience actually really does make a difference. And the thing that Ages ago, I read an article about the real nub of the problem of Paul's theology about Judaism is that if you are Jewish and therefore you are following the purity regulations about the way in which you eat, I mean, it's all very well for Paul to say you need to eat with Gentiles. But if you then go off and do eat with Gentiles, it means that by definition, you can't eat with the rest of your family unless they've also converted to Christianity. So you've got these kind of real visceral on the ground issues that you don't see until you actually have to imagine it through. And if you're saying, it's all very well to say, just get over your problem of eating with Gentiles, why don't you just go and do it? Actually, you are making a really big decision about belonging and how you engage with people who belong. And if you suddenly realise that you're asking a Jew to cut themselves off from one network of relationships in order to join another network of relationships, you realise that they're not just being petty. Actually, this is a really big deal. Let's step back, if we can now, and look at your experience of having written both books uh, around Paul's correspondence. I wonder how you feel this approach that you've taken with Phoebe and Lydia helps us see new or underestimated aspects of Paul's character and Paul's kind of person? Oh, absolutely. There was one review of Phoebe where somebody basically said they thought I didn't think Paul was very nice. They thought Paul was very nice. I paraphrase the the review. Um, So therefore, they disagreed with my reading of Paul. And what I would have said to them, you never get the chance to talk to your reviewer, do you? But if I had, then what I would have said to them is that my point was not that Paul was or wasn't nice, but that different people actually reacted to him in different ways. So therefore, there were some people who totally understood who he was and why he reacted as he did and absolutely understood his motivations. But there were other people who were deeply hurt by him. And what I try and bring out actually in both books is that Paul's attitudes um, worked really well for some people, and clearly it worked really well for some people, but other people were really hurt and bruised by it, just as almost all of us will find it easier to get on with one kind of person than another kind of person. You know, and if you ask person A, you know, what's Paula really like? They might say, oh, she's fun and bubbly and kind of really easy to talk to. Ask person B and say, well, I wish you wouldn't talk all the time. I wish you'd kind of spend a bit more time and quiet. We all of us have people who respond better and worse to us. And what I was trying to say is Paul is the same. And today, Paul is the same. There are people who absolutely would love Paul to come for dinner and to have a good argy-bargy over dinner over whatever piece of theology they'd like to talk to him about. Other people would say, you're the last person I'd like to have dinner with. I mean, you'd be a real pain. and Wouldn't you just like to have a nice, quiet, gentle conversation? And just trying to kind of reveal through the way in which I'm writing that actually Paul is a Marmite character. He was then, he is now. And one of the things that strikes me as I read it is also he's a more complex character rather than either entirely good or entirely sort of problematic. And and that's one of the things that comes out in the books is his own personal struggles, his own kind of wrestling with his own theological emotions. Was that part of the agenda as well, part of your hopes and aims? Absolutely. I've never really been the kind of Pauline scholar that thinks that Paul conceived the entirety of Romans in his head in one go and then said, and therefore this is what I think. And 
I think one of the things that you realize when you really get into Paul's letters is that he's not giving you the final answer. What he's doing is living the experience. And the thing that, again, struck me a few years ago when I was reading Paul is that when we think about the Gospels, what the Gospels are doing are tell you what happened. Who was Jesus? What did he do? What did his death look like? What happened at his resurrection? What Paul does is go, yeah, yeah, I've got all of that. Actually, what does it mean? What difference does it make? And so what Paul is doing is living through this big lifelong question of what difference does Jesus's death and resurrection now make to me? And he does it through the way in which he reflects on law and grace. He does it through the way in which he reflects on suffering. And what you find is Paul doing this kind of lived theology of that's who Jesus was. Who am I now as a result? And that's what you kind of get with that wrestling, I think. Can you say a little bit more about that lived theology that Paul is doing? Because as well as looking at Paul the man, Paul the the teacher, the apostle, one of the things your books also do is help us see the good news, I think, through different lenses. What is it about this lived theology that's so transformingly good news? For me, right at the heart is Paul can now say that the world is a different place. The whole cosmos, the world itself is changed, it's redeemed, it's transformed. And therefore, if I want to summarise Paul's message, I would say that Paul is basically saying, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the world is now completely transformed. Now live like you think that to be true. And what you often find in Paul's letters is the first half is where he's laying out the theology about what's happened and why this is really important. And then you always get the end bits of Paul's letter, which is, and this is now how you live your life. This is how you relate, Jew and Gentile. Um, You know, when people annoy you, this is how you respond. These are the characters that you live out in your everyday life. And for me, the thing that makes the good news good for Paul is that the world is changed, A, and B, that now therefore who we are and how we live in the world has to change to reflect that. And those two things are, for him, the big transformative. And that's why he could be in prison for years and years and actually in Philippians still rejoice where you go, how can you do that? For Paul, that's the live theology. That's where it comes from. You mentioned Tom Wright earlier on, Paula. I remember hearing Tom Wright talk about what Paul would be surprised by now. And he said, well, the thing that Paul would be utterly flummoxed by was that there were these things called different denominations. There were things that, you know, different churches. You just find that completely baffling, really. What was there as you wrote these books where you're thinking, crumbs, that's a really big challenge to the church today. You know, if we really understand this message of Romans and Philippians and Paul's message more more generally, crumbs, that's a that's a pretty clarion call of wake up and challenge i think it's that we are meant to look after everybody the bit that comes through in all of the letters is that no one is left behind we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep but that doesn't just mean the odd five minutes from time to time or if remembered you exist i shall do a bit of rejoicing now but actually it's the way in which their lives are bound up with each other There is very, very strong evidence from outside the New Testament that the thing that was most transformative of the community from people looking in was the fact that 
they really cared about each other. They lived each other's lives to the fullest of the capacity. But I think for me, the really big challenge is now we live much more disparate lives. We're very much more kind of individualistic. But how do we live in that sense where we really care about everyone who is part of the body of Christ? I wonder if we could stand back now and think about the role of imagination more generally to reading, exploring and teaching, not just on Paul's letters. What is the contribution that imagination can make? Well, I need to add at this point that it depends who you are. I've been making the point about it's really significant to recognise that different people responded to Paul in different ways. Different people do imagination in different ways. And it came as a great surprise to me a while back um, to discover that, you know, if I say, you know, you think about a story, I see it in my mind's eye. Well, I've discovered there are people who don't. And I, I kind of, when I first discovered that, I went, what, really? You don't see any pictures in your mind's eye. And they actually think in lists and not in pictures. So it's worth kind of just saying that I am aware that I am an extreme example of somebody who sees in pictures. Therefore, I'm not saying that what we learn from in imagination will be true for everybody, because actually there will be some people who will go, no, still don't see it. No idea what you're talking about. And just to say that that's absolutely fine. But if we are able to understand imagination, there are some really key things that I think that will help us. The first thing is that if we don't do imagination deliberately, we will do it subconsciously or accidentally. And one of the things I often do when I'm doing a lecture on this is I like to show people the Da Vinci Last Supper. Um, Because invariably, if you see a picture in your mind's eye of something, somebody will have put it there. It will probably have come in some way through the history of art. It might have come from Sunday school. You might have got it from your Good News Bible illustrations. But someone will have illustrated it somehow. And you will see that picture in your mind's eye. How phenomenally difficult is it to think the Last Supper and then think not Da Vinci? Not everyone sitting down one side of the table, which is so blatantly obviously not the case that it would never have been that way. But our imaginations are locked into it. Think about your imagining of the nativity. We imagine the, into the nativity a whole load of things that are simply not there, but art history, tradition, nativity plays have all given us pieces of information. So the first thing I think is really important about imagination is actually going back and examining your imagination. What's there? And what is there because it's there in the text? And what is there because someone else has put it in your mind for whatever reason, however that's happened? And the first thing that I found that was really powerful about that when I I referred earlier to recognising that there were only men in my imagination, that comes a lot through art history. If you look at a lot of paintings of biblical stories, most of them actually have exclusively male um, protagonists in them. So actually, there is, I think, something about going back and looking at your imagination deliberately, clearly and saying, what's there? Why is it there? What's come from the text and what's been put in elsewhere? So the first thing I think is really important about that kind of deliberate imagination. And then the second thing, I think, is around creativity. And one of the things that I think is really powerful about spirituality and Christian spirituality is that we are called to be creative, that whole idea about being co-creators with God. We are designed to be creative beings. 
and imagination draws us into that spirituality of creativity. My bet noir is people saying imagination's really terrible, you mustn't do it under any circumstances, and then they've got all the things that they imagine anyway. One of the things that I like to do is say, okay, strip everything back. Imagine you're kind of um, redecorating your room. You take it all the way back to the personal work. Now you're allowed to put in your imagination only what you can find in the text. And then when you know what is only what you can find in the text, then you will say, well, okay, let's now put in what we might know from history. You know, what do ancient houses look like? How, do, how are people dressed? All those kind of questions. And you can put some of that in. And then once you've done all of that, then I say, knock yourself out, be as creative as you like, but know that actually that bit then is where you're being creative. Don't forget the bits that you've imagined and you've made up entirely and the bits that you've imagined that you've actually got from the text and don't conflate the two. And once you start doing that, then you actually get into, I think, a really interesting realm of interpretation. You mentioned earlier, Paula, the epiphany moment where you realised that your whole imaginative world was populated by men. And obviously, Phoebe and Lydia have been a really important part of that journey since it's been a huge blessing to so many people as well. I want to ask the question, how has this new aspect of your own writing career impacted your own journey of faith, your own worship and your own prayer? And I can imagine that's a journey that continues. Well, I've begun repopulating my imagination with women. It's going well. I will carry on. Um, I think... Do you know what's really interesting is when you start telling stories about people, and as I have done around Phoebe and Lydia, one of the key things you have to do in the story is you actually have to really like your characters. And therefore, when you really like your characters, you forgive them for things and you give reasons about why they have done what they've done and you understand how they've got to a certain place. And once you start doing that, then you suddenly realise that actually, maybe you could do it for yourself as well. You know, if I'm allowed to forgive Phoebe for doing whatever, actually, maybe I could forgive myself for whatever. And maybe I could forgive this other person. And I think the other thing that really struck me when I'm writing Lydia, possibly even more than when I was writing Phoebe, is that we only ever know, what, 0.05% of a person, because we only ever meet them in this moment doing this thing. And behind them is this massive backstory that most of the time we never encounter. We know our own backstory, but we don't know other people's backstories. And I think what my own journey of faith has developed is recognising that all of these biblical characters have backstories. And as they have backstories, all of the people I meet in my Christian journey have backstories. And the thing that I've realised out of that, I knew it before, but it's crystallised so much more, is how much easier it it is to forgive someone if they've just kind of turned around and barked to you about something. But then you can say, actually, well, they've done that for a reason I don't know. Something is going on for them that has meant that they do it in that way. So I think that kind of whole theme of forgiveness and recognition and kind of the whole person and really is that's one of the biggest things that I've learned. That's a really moving and thought provoking place on which to end. Paula Gooder, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. It's been lovely to be with you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal Durham. 
Penmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. Thank you.